The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It's always interesting to me to hear that read about me, and I wonder, who is that guy? (laughs) Because I was so many different people during all those phases of my life. But one thread tied all of it together. I have been continually interested in our human inability to communicate with one another. Uh, The heart of our suffering and a lot of what the Buddha was attempting to teach us to do. But if you, like me, pay any attention to the news these days, you know that we uh, are not doing very well at all in that department. Maybe a one and a half on a scale of ten. I don't know. But from my perspective, there is hope because there is a way to learn that the Buddha offered us such that we can transform our communication, not just our internal communication with ourselves, but with others. And if, like me, you occasionally have upsets with those you care about or those you work with or people in your family that you don't particularly want to talk to very often, then I hope that this talk this morning will be helpful to you. It is more or less the culmination of my life's effort to understand why we're so bad at something that we do all the time. Now, as you know, the Buddha offered us Four Noble Truths as his fundamental teaching. It was the very first sermon he preached after his enlightenment. And the first one, as I'm sure you know, is the Noble Truth of Suffering. The word dukkha, which is translated as suffering, the etymology of that word is very helpful. It actually means an axle hole in the wheel that's rough. So if you have a rough opening for your axle in the wheel of your cart, you can imagine the ride will be rough. So what he's really saying to us is that the ride through our life is generally rough. There are ups and downs, there are bumps, there are problems that we encounter. And from my perspective, a great deal of those problems come from our inability to converse well, both internally, the little conversations I have pretty constantly with Daniel about what he's doing right and what mostly he's doing wrong at certain times, and the conversations I have with others, where for my amazement, often they don't agree with me. (laughs) As wise and wonderful and silver-tongued articulate as I have been, that they don't agree with me. It's strange. One of my great uh, uh, teacher 
has always been uh, Jalaluddin Rumi. I'm sure many of you are familiar with him. And he describes true conversation as sobet. In Sufi circles, they say, there's prayer, and a step up from that is meditation, and a step up from that is sobet, a conversation. Who is talking to whom? Who is lost in being together? A whole different way to hold conversation. Because mostly we hold conversation is I've got something to say and I want to get it into your head so that you will say, oh, oh wow, I wish I had thought of that. I, you're exactly right, Daniel. And that's especially true when I have an upset with someone, if you're like me. I have that conversation in my head with them quite a bit as I'm driving, as I'm meditating, I have a conversation in my head with them and they always answer the right things in that conversation. <laughs> and then when I have the real conversation that I've rehearsed so many times in my head, it's a conversation that I'm still having with Daniel. I'm not having a conversation with them. That, for me, is the meaning of sobet. And the etymology of the word conversation is instructive also. It comes from uh, con, meaning together or among, and verse, which means to turn about with. So, in other words, a true conversation is when together with another we turn about together. I've rarely seen that on the news lately. <laughs> and in fact, I rarely see it at all. And this is the source of our suffering in life. This is the dissatisfaction we have in life. The Buddha also noted that there is an origin for our dissatisfaction, and that's, as you know, our craving our clinging, our wanting it to be the way the conversation is in my head because I know what happened and I know it's true and I experienced it and I know I have the right perspective and I just have to persuade them and I'm absolutely certain about it. And the more I have the conversation in my head with them, the more certain I become. So I am obviously clinging to my view, to my certainty, to my perspective, to the imaginary conversation in my head. And you know, we human beings are really a little weird. There's a difference between us and rats. If you put rats in a maze, and there are maybe four tunnels, and you put cheese down one of the tunnel, the rats will go in tunnel number one, no cheese, come out, go down tunnel number two, no cheese, go out, find it in tunnel number three. Next time you put them in the maze, they'll try tunnel number one or two or four, but they'll go to tunnel number three, and eventually they'll just go right to tunnel number three. However, 
If you move the cheese from tunnel number three, let's say to tunnel number four, the rats will go into tunnel number three, no cheese. They'll come out, they'll go back into tunnel number three, no cheese. They'll go out, they will then go into tunnel number one and look in tunnel number two and tunnel number four and they'll find the cheese. We human beings will keep going down tunnel number three forever. <laughs> because we're certain we're right. There will be cheese down there. Something has happened and it's not my fault. I know that every time I say a certain thing to people, especially my wife or someone in my family, I know the result that will happen. And I'm clinging to my certainty, and so I do it anyway. Knowing that it's not going to work, knowing that it's going to cause suffering, knowing that it's going to cause the dissatisfactory underlying condition of life to arise, I'm still clinging. Thankfully, the Buddha also taught us the third noble truth that there is a way out of suffering, dissatisfaction. There is actually a way to train ourselves not to keep going down tunnel number three where there is no cheese. And it obviously takes work. And I'm among friends. You obviously are interested in learning to do that. You would not be here. You would not be practicing meditation. You would not be supporting this wonderful sinner were you not wanting to get yourself out of the habit of going and doing the things that you know don't work yet you do them anyway, just like me. And then the fourth noble truth is, well, what's the path? What's the way to remove that dissatisfaction and actually, in my metaphor, to learn how to go down a tunnel that might have the cheese in it, to try something different, to overcome our habitual ways. I started on this journey when I was as uh, Heather, Martha. Martha, thank you, Martha. Martha noted in my uh, very kind introduction. By the way, I'm no longer at the U.S. District Court. I left. That's okay. I haven't bothered to tell you. How would you know? I'm in private practice now with my wife in Sausalito. So she and I work together as mediators. Uh, but I learned, began to see into this question of conversation when I was the first public defender in Charleston, South Carolina in the 70s. It was a very popular position, as you might imagine. <laughs> I was crazy and arrogant and deep South Carolina, nine generations of Southern Baptist preacher. So I had that in me. And I had gone to Harvard. So I was full of myself. <laughs> and 
we had a federal grant that, like most federal grants, starts off 90%, 10% contribution from the local government. Then the next year, it's 70%, with maybe 30% from the local government, and it goes down for two or three years. And then the local government takes over. So my second year, I got all my dog and pony show together to show all the cases that we had handled and what a great job we had done. And we had stayed within budget, in fact, had a little surplus. And I individually met with every member of county council. And they were all very receptive and very appreciative and very nice, I thought, conversations. And then I went to the county council meeting and my friend Lonnie Hamilton, who was a jazz saxophonist and the first African-American chairman of the county council, was chair. So I thought, this is in the bag. You got it. You're hot. And I made my presentation, and I said, well, when will y'all let me know? And I had asked for more money than I actually needed because that's what I thought I should do. Not a lot more, a reasonable amount figuring that they, that would give them room to cut me back and I'd get enough. And they said, in a few days. So I went home feeling pretty good and I got up the next morning and this was in the days of getting your newspaper on your front lawn and I went out to my, get my newspaper and not the banner headline, but a top headline on the newspaper said, front page said, County Council denies public defender all money. In other words, they didn't give me the required federal matching grant that by law they were required to give. They didn't even give me the amount of money they had given me the first year. They gave me nothing. Zero. I was, shall we say, upset. <laughs> And I still can't believe I did this, but I did it. <clears throat> I called a press conference because I was friends with all the press in Charleston. After all, there was only one newspaper, three television stations, and a couple of radio stations. So it wasn't a lot of press conferencing to call. And I knew from experience that if you talked a lot, they picked and chose what they would put on the air. So, I looked into the cameras and the microphones and the reporter asked me, Mr. Bowling, what is your reaction to the county council's decision not to fund the public defender office? And I said, ladies and gentlemen, citizens, I'm here to warn you of an impending crime wave. Go home now and lock your doors and windows. <laughs> Because of the county council's decision, the courts will have to let people out of jail. There will be no public defender. And I shut my mouth. And they asked me all sorts of other questions, and I said not a single word. I just stood there with my mouth closed. And, of course, that led all the news channels that night. Ah, right? And they called an emergency meeting of the county council and voted to give me all the money that I'd asked for, which was more than I needed. But that was not 
a skillful conversation. It was not based on the Buddha's teachings. Because I came from the certainty of being right. And I was not coming from the very first step. I didn't even know about it that the Buddha taught in the Eightfold Noble Path of skillful understanding. What did he mean by that? Skillful understanding, of course, in the strict interpretation means an understanding of the Buddha's teachings, a practice of understanding those teachings. That life is fundamentally unsatisfactory, that there's a cause our clinging, our knowing what's right, our certainty, and there's a way out. And the way out is the Eightfold Path. So how does this unsatisfactoriness appear in conversation that leads to conflict? Being right. If I intend to go into a conversation with someone from a place of certainty and knowing that I have the whole deal, as I did with those county council members, that I understood all the complexities that they were dealing with in terms of budget, of course I understood their fundamental racism, and I was right about that but I didn't have an openness to communication with them. One of my favorite authors, Dr. Theodore Zeldin, wrote a book called Conversation, How Talk Can Change Our Lives. Talking does not necessarily change one's own or other people's feelings or ideas. The 21st century needs to develop not talk, but conversation, which does change people. Real conversation catches fire. It involves more than sending and receiving information. It involves more than sending and receiving information. The kind of conversation I am interested in is one which you start with a willingness to emerge a different person is one which you start with a willingness to emerge a different person. That is what the Buddha is taught, pointing to with wise understanding. We come from a place where we realize we're clinging to our view. We're certain. We're right. And we're unwilling to emerge a different person because that would mean giving up our clinging, giving up our being right. And we may indeed be right in some aspects, but there's something that we're not hearing through our certainty. Our certainty blocks our ability to have wise understanding with another. We can't hear the nuance of their suffering, the nuance of their perspective, 
And most fundamentally, we can't connect with them on the level that true conversation requires. I am interested in conversation where you start with a willingness to emerge a slightly different person. It is always an experiment whose results are never guaranteed. It involves risk. And my favorite line, it's an adventure in which we agree to cook the world together and make it taste less bitter. That's wise understanding. That's real conversation. I definitely was not good at this when I was a public defender. I definitely was certain. And I was smart. I had a client who began to teach me. And his name, I'll call him Robert Lee Jones. Robert Lee had a penchant for getting into trouble. And he and I had, I think it was at least three or four jury trials. And if you know anything about criminal law, you know that maybe roughly two or three or four or five percent go to jury trials. Most are pled out. So for one person to have a jury trial is a big deal, but for one person to have three or four and get off every time is amazing. (laughs) The last one, Robert Lee robbed a jewelry store, allegedly, and he was caught turning in his jacket at the local dry cleaners, and in the jacket were rings from the jewelry store, and on his fingers were rings from the jewelry store. That was a tough one. (laughs) And... One of the places in my life that is still painful for me to tell the story is that my friend, a lawyer friend's mother, owned the jewelry store. Now, it was in a poor black neighborhood, and they were selling jewelry way overpriced, calling zircons, diamonds, etc., So it was, from my liberal perspective, rather unseemly, but yet he was my friend and she was otherwise a very good lady. But I ripped her apart on the stand and he was sitting in the courtroom. The case went to the jury on a Friday afternoon. The jury was out for quite a long time and they came back not guilty. Several months, I don't remember how long went by, and one day I'm trying another case and I'm hanging out back in the back of the courtroom like lawyers do, waiting for the judge or waiting for something to happen. And I'm schmoozing with the cop who's always arresting Robert Lee. And I say to him, 
what's happening with Robert Lee? And he looks at me and he says, uh, I just arrested him last night. And I said, blankety blank, when is he going to learn? And he looked at me and said, learn what, Daniel? He's got a smart lawyer who gets him off every time. Certainty began to crumble. Wise understanding, I would not have called it then because I was, I was actually doing yoga then, but not Buddhism. And I did not have what is the second step of the Eightfold Path, right thinking. And what is really right thinking? Fundamentally, the Buddha taught it's recognizing that our thoughts are conditioned and are therefore inherently unreliable. And what does it mean our thoughts are conditioned? Well, let me just offer you an experiment. As you get into the car or you walk home, however you leave here today, notice that you have thoughts that are similar to the thoughts you have every time you leave here. And in the morning when you get up or when you get home this afternoon, notice that when you open the door to your apartment or house or you walk in, you have thoughts that arise every time you open the door and walk into your house. And when you get up in the morning and before you go to bed at night, And when you look at the refrigerator, particularly, you have thoughts that are conditioned by what has happened before. And especially in our relationships and our intimate ones, for sure. When I see my wife, I have conditioned thoughts. When I pick up the phone and it's my right-wing fundamentalist sister on the phone... I have conditioned thoughts. But we believe our thoughts. We don't recognize that they're unreliable because the thoughts, we are not thinking the thoughts. That's the arrogant way we see it. Our thoughts are literally arising caused by the conditions that are around us. If we smell a really nice smelling pie cooking in the oven, bam, our thoughts are conditioned by that. That's why advertisement works. So we have this wrong view that we think, therefore I am. The early philosopher John Locke was absolutely wrong. There are conditions, therefore I think. I'm thinking. So, wise thinking is recognizing the fundamentally conditioned nature of our thoughts. And I did not know that when the officer said to me, looked at me like I was a fool, which I was, But something in me snapped. 
And literally, I called a press conference the next morning and resigned. I did not know what I was going to do. I wasn't sure why I was doing it. But I recognized that my thinking had gotten so distorted that I had moved away from who I wanted and believed that I was. Wise thinking is recognizing the conditioned nature of our thoughts. And what is a practice? I very often say to myself, when I see Joe or Jane and conditioned thoughts arise about them, I used to think that way. I don't think that way anymore. I used to think that way. I don't think that way anymore. It's just a reminder that my thoughts are conditioned and to let go. So how do we then move from a place of recognizing that our thoughts are conditioned that they're unreliable to a place of more openness to the universe and to our relationships. The Buddha's next steps on the noble path point us in that direction, beginning with wise speech. And here's my translation of what wise speech is really about. My truth is an oxymoron. How many times have you said or heard somebody else say, I just need to let you know my truth? <laughs> if they said, I just, let to know, I just need to let you know the conditioned nature of my thinking, <laughs> that would actually be their truth. But the assertion that I know something that's true for me or anyone else belies the conditioned nature of our thoughts. So wise speech must arise in relationship. It must arise in connection. It must arise in being able to listen to another and connect with them from a place of humility and openness. And that's what wise action is. The next step on the path. Because from a conversational perspective, I believe that wise action is listening. Now, here's what we normally call listening. Several times already this morning, in fact, repeatedly, I have said something that reminded you of something and you went off thinking about that something while you thought you were listening to me. And we all do that all the time. When Joe is talking to me and I'm upset with Joe, I particularly do it because Joe said ABC and while he's saying ABC, I'm thinking in my head how to refute ABC and why ABC is wrong. So I haven't 
really listened. So I commend to you the meditation called wise listening, especially in your intimate and close familial and uh, spousal relationships. When the other is speaking, go right to your breath and hold your breath. Hold your focus on your breath and focus on what they're saying. And when your mind arises with a thought, note the thought and say, I used to think that way. I'm not thinking that way right now. And focus back on them. And keep coming back to them. Keep coming back to them. And when they have finished what they've said, instead of immediately jumping in with what you've been preparing to say, you won't at that point have anything prepared to say. You will be open. And the way to help you through that openness is to simply, without paraphrasing, without parroting, to paraphrase or summarize, I heard you say ABC. A very simple but challenging practice. And then you can say, let me take a moment, and you do, and you pause, and then you respond. I promise you that that slowed down process will transform your relationships. The fifth practice is called wise livelihood. And I think that our livelihood, the basis on which we live, is truly composed of our relational community. We have a way that we make a living, but that's also often connected with our relational community, our customers the people that we work with, our fellow employees. That's our community. So supporting wise livelihood only arises when we affirm and acknowledge our common humanity. So if I'm practicing with you, instead of, a, while you're saying ABC, I'm preparing my counter-argument to jump in as soon as you shut your mouth, and I'm right in there with DEF is true, I'm certainly not accepting your and my common humanity, our frailty, how we're often driven by the conditioned nature of our thoughts. And the person we're talking to might not know anything about our practice or Buddhism. And we're the ones that bringing our practice into the world. So, Opening our hearts to others and accepting that they, like I, am a frail, messed up, conditioned thinking human being making mistakes and doing the best I can. The best possible view I can hold. Now, how do we do that? 
It's not easy. That's why the Buddha's next step is called wise effort. You got to work at it. And I call that being in development. Allowing yourself to be in development. You know, usually if uh, we want to learn a skill, let's say the graph line runs uh, horizontally here, we expect that we're going to learn that skill and we're going to get better at it, so the vertical graph. And we have this expectation that the line of our learning over time will go something like that. You know, we'll get better and better and better and we'll increase our skill over time. But in my experience, it really doesn't work that way. I might have a little spurt of doing better and then I screw up and I tumble down below the line sometimes. And then I go along for a while and then I might have another spurt of getting better. And then I tumble down and I mess and I get back and it's all over the place. So give yourself the space to be in development in these areas of your life. Let go of the tight hold you have on your own heart about how you have to do it so perfectly all the time and the conversation I have in my head about what a Daniel, you screwed up again. When are you going to get it? That conversation. Let that one rest. Because life will teach you if you don't get it yourself. Because a few years went by and I was in private practice with my former landlord who was a state senator State senators in South Carolina are an interesting breed of people. And one day into my office walked the head of the local uh, Charleston Ports Longshoremen's Union. A very fine-looking African-American gentleman. And this was in the 80s when the feds were investigating the Longshoremen's Union up and down the coast, I think they did it out here in the West Coast also, for corruption, etc. It was always interesting to me, being the political and personal persuasion I have, I never saw them investigating the corruption of the dock owners and the shipbuilders and all those people. They just seemed to worry about corruption of people working, but that's another story. So in he walks, and he tells me his story that he's uh, being tried down in Miami, and would I represent him, and we make an arrangement that I will, in fact, represent him. And as I did with most of my clients, as he was leaving, I said, how did you... Um, come to me. And he said, you don't remember me. And I said, well, actually, no. I have the vague feeling that I've seen you somewhere, but I don't remember you. Please forgive me. And he said, well, remember that trial of the kid who had rings on his fingers <laughs> and rings in the pocket of his coat? And I puffed up inside. 
yes, well, of course I remember that. And he said, well, I was on the jury. Oh, I thought, <laughs> isn't this nice? Isn't this nice? Forgetting in that moment the seventh step of the Buddha's eightfold path, wise mindfulness, because I didn't even know it then. And what wise mindfulness means in the context of conversation and speech is being aware of the paradoxical nature of life. There are so many ways that we undermine ourselves because we are taught to see life from an either-or perspective. Either I'm good or I'm bad. Either I'm right or you're wrong. Either I'm successful or I'm not. Either I'm happy or I'm sad. Rather than recognizing that the interconnected nature of all our relationships and all of our life is the paradox. There is nothing on the planet that does not have an opposite. Nothing. Everything has an opposite. We wouldn't be alive if we only breathed in. <laughs> we have to breathe out. We wouldn't be alive if there weren't electrons, positive and negative. We wouldn't have light. You can't think of a thing that doesn't have a paradoxical opposite. But we hold it differently. And I certainly in that moment held the magnificence of my success. And that's why I was getting this client. And he said, yeah. On Thursday, I looked out in the courtroom and there were two or three FBI agents and I knew that they were waiting to maybe arrest me, but certainly take me in for questioning. And on Friday, you recall, the case went to the jury, and they were still out there. I hung the jury. It was 11 to 1 for conviction. And it was Friday afternoon. And about 6 or 7 o'clock, if you recall... They all got so mad at me that they swung and voted to acquit. <laughs> Quite a deflation, as you can imagine. Quite a humbling experience. Life does that to us. And so the last step of the Buddha's Eightfold Path. Wise concentration from the point of view of the conversation that is all our lives is to belong to that conversation. And what do I mean by belonging to a conversation? That just seems like such a weird phrase. I'll ask it in a different way. Do you belong to the conversation that is your relationship with yourself? Or are you constantly having negative and attacking 
expectations of yourself and putting yourself down and worrying and not accepting the life that you are given right now. Do you belong to the conversation that is your work? Or are you in constant paradoxical push and pull with it? Do you belong to the conversation that is your family? Or are you in constant paradoxical push and pull with it, either or, either or, instead of both and? Do you belong to the conversation that is your relationship to this practice? Or are you constantly judging yourself in an either or way, either I did good or I did bad, instead of holding it all as both and? I can't belong to a conversation with you or anyone if I'm certain that I'm right. Wise understanding. I can belong to a conversation when I remember wise thinking that my thoughts are conditioned and therefore unreliable. And I can belong to a conversation through wise speech because I don't hold on to my truth I allow the truth to emerge between us, among us. That's belonging to a conversation. And through wise action, where I'm listening, I'm really listening, not inside my head, but to what you're saying. And I'm reframing back what I heard you say to stay connected with you. And by living mindfully and affirming our common humanity, wise livelihood and wise effort, allowing myself to make mistakes, allowing myself to be in development over time, allowing myself to have good days and bad days in the paradox of life, the both andness, the wise mindfulness of life instead of the either or. <clears throat> 